Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he's caught in the middle of the bog frog battle between Grolnock and the Gitrog monster. It's Matt Morgan. So I recently inherited some land and uh, I must say it's a lot. They a lot uh, of land. Uh, you know, uh, oh, I, it, it took you a second. I'm, I understand. I'm proud of you, Matt. There's some space to I, explore I, on I, that. I knew it was happening. There's a one-two bunch of dad jokes coming from this guy. Excellently done. Up next, he knows that the true winner of any frog battle is actually from a little spore froggy boy. That's the real winner. It's Dana Roach. Um, I thought I was saving myself a lot of hassle by suggesting my grandma do all her Christmas shopping at Amazon, um, but that backfired badly, and now I need to pick her up at the airport when she flies back from Brazil. There it is. There it is. Uh, Dana, I would just like to know what I did to you in a past life to warrant you also joining in on the dad jokes. I thought that was just Matt's thing, but now you're hitting you, me with them You too. earned it, Joey. This you, is one more thing to did. unpack in therapy. Oh, man. Anyway, this is the EDH Rec cast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Matt, what is it that we're talking about in this week's episode? This week, we're going to talk about whether a deck can be oversaturated with a certain type of effect and if you know it, it truly is possible to have too much of a good thing. Yes, this should be pretty interesting. This is the first episode that we've got coming out after the American Thanksgiving holiday. So while we are recording this one in advance, it's possible that we may have all overindulged. And this is an episode where we're going to remember to sort of balance our diets, including in EDH. It should be a bunch of fun. Real quick, let's pause and give a huge thank you to the folks at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast. And we want to thank our sponsors too. The EDH RecCast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG player where every day is like a black friday sale minus the trampling <laughs> just go over edh rec and click on the a card in question go to the vendor link down below and choose it doing so supports both the site and the show and if you'd prefer to support the show directly you can do so over at patreon.com slash edh recast this is where you can support the show and you get some awesome perks for yourself while you're at it whether you want to join the amazing discord community that we have going on whether you want some exclusive swag that we send out to patrons several times a year uh, there's all sorts of different things that you can be doing for you know and supporting yourself because i think they're pretty cool perks that's just me though um, we even have a very very special perk where we shout out a patron just for signing up just for supporting us um, and this week we want to give a shout out to brandon wrangle who actually is the cousin of rankle prankle the master of prankles um, from throne of eldraine um, so brandon wrangle prankle um, thank you for the support um, and for heading to patreon.com slash Thank you so much, Brandon. We really appreciate it. All right, fellas, let's get into our main topic here. Once again, we are talking about the oversaturation, overindulgence, too much of a good thing, and how that can sometimes crop up in our own EDH experiences. And basically just when things get out of balance, but since they are usually good problems, like the things are going well, and these are things that you actually do want the deck to do, it's sometimes hard to notice that these are potentially deck building problems in your deck. If it's all right with you guys, I'll actually start off with an example of this that has come up very, very frequently for my new Karazakar the Eye Tyrant deck. This is where I have noticed this problem coming up the most. Karazakar is a new Rakdos deck that I've built that attacks, taps, and goads enemy creatures to force my opponents to hit each other. And he's got a fantastic ability where when my opponents hit each other, then we each draw cards and lose life, which is awesome. And so the deck 
functioning well means that I'm goading all of my opponent's stuff, everyone's hitting each other and not me, and that is exactly what I want the deck to do. The reason that this can sometimes be too much of a good thing, though, is because I lose life and draw cards every time my opponents attack each other. And having played that deck quite a lot now, I've lost to that ability, making me lose too much life as my opponents attack each other. I've lost to that ability like two or three times at this point. So the deck is doing exactly what I want it to do, but there's too much of a good thing happening here because my opponents are actually finding ways to make my own commander's ability, which I want to occur, they're making it work against me and forcing me to lose more life than I thought that I would with this deck. And it is just an interesting thing to try and figure out what do I do about that. This is a good thing, but it's too much of a good thing. It is a weird problem to have. So that is kind of my first example for this oversaturation of, yeah, it's working, but it's a little, you had a little bit too much turkey this Thanksgiving, I think is what is basically going on with this deck. And the problem with some of these things too, that I'm sure we'll get into here is, you know, you have to devote slots in your deck to, to doing whatever thing you want to do. Um, and in this case, Joey, since your commander is the one doing this thing, you, you can't like just take copies of something out of this deck to do it less often. <laughs> your commander is there doing it. So, so in order to like maybe buffer against that, you're going to need to figure out how to make changes in your deck to offset the, the damage being done to you. Which requires taking things out and making changes. Like it, it's a difficult balance to strike because it does require you to change the the amount of whatever is in your deck to kind of get that that chemistry just correct. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean we've talked many times about like if the effect is in your command zone, how much of that effect do you actually need to put in the deck if it's important for the deck? And that seems like a really tricky line to 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 kind of tiptoe around because. Yeah, this is one that you can actually die to. It's not just that, oh, I, I'm doing one thing too much. Like this this one's actually leading to your impending doom. Um, so nice job, Joey, on finding a way to to take after Dana, but then it actually just kills you. <laughs> right. That's uh, and I think that's it, Dana. I think that you are part of the reason why it took me so long to realize how much of a problem this was actually becoming for my Karazakar deck, because I'm so used to you paying ten life to draw just one card. Like and I was just like, Yeah, right. if he can do it, I can do it too. But like no, people are actually finding ways to manipulate combat against me in my combat manipulation deck. And it is a problem with a solution, but it took me a while to find that I needed to have a solution in there to put a whole bunch more life gain into that deck because I didn't realize that I could end up losing like six life per round of the table. And then that was gonna drain me way faster than the typical, you know, little tiny edges that I thought that I'd be getting in the deck. And so that's just a good lesson to, you know, realize I, I had I had a little bit too much to eat with this deck, so I got to scale back and make sure that I balance out the the deck's diet a little bit more easily, so that I don't completely just shoot myself in the foot when playing the deck the way that I even want it to be played. It, it was totally a crazy thing to see, but it's really fun, difficult to find, but it's been really a, a fun mistake to trip myself on, if that makes any sense. Well, in this example, and I would guess in a lot of the examples we're going to talk about that are probably very specific to us, or at the very least things we've seen. Um, there's really no hard and fast numbers that we can assign to these things either. Mm -hmm. You just kind of have to be in the moment and play the deck and be in the situation to get a feel for what is too much. Mm -hmm. you, you can't just say, you know, this is too much draw slash slash life loss in the Kazakar deck because what number is that? You don't know what that is. You just have to play it and kind of get a feel for what you're going to need to run to offset that. So a lot of these things are very much things we've experienced, I think, that we're going to talk about, that if you've run into something similar in your deck, it, it's a situation where you are just going to have to kind of trial and error and figure out how to balance it because it, there's just no easy answer, really. I think that's a really good point, yeah. Yeah, this is kind of like a next level type of concept where we're not looking at specifically just categories of cards because uh, that's kind of easy to do. Like if you're looking at an equipment deck, like you typically want to be playing 10 creatures and so many artifacts. And you can see that on certain commander pages when you go to EDH rec. A lot of the things that we're going to talk about here are kind of things that you need to be looking at in your own decks because it's not going to show up on a spreadsheet or anything like that. Like this is something you kind of have to do some, some self-analysis on it and really kind of do some critical thinking when it comes to your decks. Mm -hmm. So going off of personal experience, then Dana, what's one in your experience, a deck where you've had too much of that good thing occur that you need to find a way to scale back or rebalance? Um, so the, the one that I'm really um, cautious about um, right, right now specifically, so I have a Kedis and Krom uh, partners deck. Um, it, it is a deck in, in, I wanted to build something kind of 
off the beaten path in Izzet, and I wanted to do combat damage. So that's what I figured out how to do with, with an Izzet deck. And the strategy for it, I, I'm using Krom as my attacker because he's a 4-4 with flying and he can draw me a card or two on occasion when he's out as I'm building up to kind of that alpha strike point. And then Kedis lets me spread that damage around to everyone. So it's a Voltron-ish deck, but I, I don't have the usual Voltron problem of having to kill each person one at a time. I can oftentimes kill everyone simultaneously. And how I do that is I will swing with Krom and I will hit him with a buff spell like Brute Force, which gives a creature plus three, plus three. So that will make um, Krom into a seven, seven. And then I'll cast something like Unleash Fury that doubles the damage um, he's going to deal. And then I'll copy that Unleash Fury with like a reverberate or something. Um, mm -hmm. So he'll go from, you know, three to seven to dealing 14 to dealing 28. And because of Kedis, it'll hit everyone simultaneously. So it'll probably kill one person from commander damage. And if anyone's taking much other damage prior to that, there's a decent chance it just kills the entire table. Can confirm. Um, yes. It's great. Like, I love it. I love it when you do it, dude. No, it's, it's actually terrific, but it does come out of nowhere. And it's really crazy to see how much damage multiplication you could back onto that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's real cool. Um, yeah. It works really well being able to copy those spells. Um, when you have those spells to copy, um, when it doesn't work <laughs> is when I don't have that brute force or I don't have that Unleashed Fury, but I do have Reverberate and Twin Cast and Fork and Reiterate. <laughs> and increasing vengeance. Um, copy spells are great unless the only spells you have to copy are copy spells. So finding that balance there, I want to have multiple different copy options in that deck because there's only so many variants to Unleash Fury to double the damage. So I want to be able to you know, stack those up. But if I have too many ways to stack those up, then I'm just going to sit with a handful of copies in my hand that don't do any good at all. Mm. Um, so that's been, and it's still ongoing. I've had that deck for, you know, probably a year and a half-ish now. And I'm still constantly kind of tweaking that a little bit and trying to find that perfect balance of having enough to have one when I need it, but not having so many that I'm in a position where I'm holding on to four of them that I can't use. Yeah, it's finding a balance between win cards and win more cards, and and when does when you know those mm -hmm. cards that help you win become win more? Well, that's when you have four of them at once, but you don't have you know those other things that you need to kind of you know precursor those. Um, I've I've come across that situation a few times in my own decks too, where uh, my real deck, obviously real wants mm. to be discarding a lot of cards because then it turns you into drawing more cards. But then like if everything is a looting effect, if everything's, you know, discard some cards and then you draw some more cards, like A, Riel has to be out for those cards to really be good. And B, like, what am I digging myself into? If you're not playing any win conditions, like it doesn't really matter because all you do is you're kind of doing a lot of stuff for show. Um, so kind of like with what Dana has, you know, experienced with his Kedison Krom deck is, yeah, there's, there's some very good enablers, but you need some key cards in order for those payoffs to really be worth it. And so, yeah, finding that balance of like, I, okay, I need A in order for B and C to happen. And then making sure that you have enough of those A effects, you're not, you know, undersaturating it and making sure you're not playing, you know, you're, you're playing too few of a certain type of card because you're oversaturating with different cards. And, and that I think is especially what can be so dang tricky to balance is that like, you know, when there's any number of categories that are going on in one of your commander decks, there are the the classic categories that we're familiar with, you know, ramp, card draw and stuff like that. But in your own personal deck, Dana, you'll also have, you know, a category for those buff spells or some protection spells or some of those copy effects. And those will all be different categories too. But what makes it so difficult to balance is that increasing the number in one category inevitably means you have to take something out of a different category. And mm -hmm. the numbers might be correct in that other category. So you actually kind of don't want to touch them. But then you have to draw power from somewhere. You can't have all of the light bulbs at full capacity. The electricity has to be diverted from some other place. But those levels might be kind of okay, but you still have to change them. And that's what especially makes it like they can sometimes when you make a tweak like that, it can feel as though you're causing a new problem of oversaturation or undersaturation by making the tweaks in the correct way, which is what makes this so difficult to pin down in the first place. Well, I was just thinking about your Riel deck today, Matt, because I saw like multiple posts. I think I saw a couple on Twitter and at least one on Reddit with people talking about their Prosper decks. Um, Prosper is my, one of my favorite commanders. I love playing the deck. 
but I don't know how to win. Mm. And if, I remember thinking like, that's the same thing Matt suffers from with Real. He likes the deck a lot, but getting to that point where you win and not just spinning your wheels can be challenging there. And I, I, I it's like the Prosper deck kind of suffers from that same thing. Yeah, it's totally possible if you're only playing, which I've seen in, in some decks, like maybe like five or six actual win conditions beyond Riel. Like sometimes you can draw, you know, half your deck and not see a single one because half your deck is just cards that just do looting type of things. And like you might spend two or three turns. Yes, you draw 20 cards, but you don't actually really accomplish anything because you're, you're trying to find a, such a limited quantity of a type of card that you really need for all of the rest of your deck to be working well and, and actually winning the game for you. Um, Psychosis Crawler is a fantastic card in real decks, but if you never see it because you're only playing one of those types of effects, um, you're really going down to variance and like that kind of stinks. Especially if in a deck like that, you are using the discard or the wheel type of effects, you might see it early and then wheel it away and then you know it's at the bottom of your deck and you're not going to get it for a while. Or you've specifically yep. discarded stuff because your wheels forced you to. It's just like, well, now I have to find something else. And wheels can certainly move through the decks really quickly, but sometimes you see the stuff that you know you need for later and so you have to get rid of it for now, but then that makes it even more difficult to actually find it later because of where you had to put it <laughs> initially. Yeah. yeah. And, and at that point it turns it into like you have to draw the card two or three times sometimes because yeah you, you try to wheel to get a lot of advantage um you have to get rid of cards that you want but you know that they're not actually playing into the the discard um, type of gameplay you're looking for so you discard something away um then you have to shuffle it back in and then you have to draw it again and like that doesn't always happen like it can be a fairly unreliable thing if you water down your win conditions in lieu of oversaturating with all these looting type of effects and so as long as we're talking about draw here, I've got another example, too, that I think for me is like the pinnacle example of too much of a good thing. And that is Peer and Toothy. They are terrific Simic Commander. Like, oh my goodness, they're crazy. Peer is, of course, the three mana one one that if you get counters on your stuff, you get that much plus one. And Toothy is the imaginary friend, the four mana one one blue commander that gets plus one counters on it anytime you draw a card. And also when it leaves the battlefield, you draw cards equal to the number of plus one counters that it had. Really powerful stuff. And with Peer's ability to give it even more plus one counters every time you draw stuff, it gets really big or really fast. It can commander damage people no problem. And sometimes you even want it to leave the battlefield so that you can draw a whole bunch of cards. The thing is, when playing against Peer and Toothy decks, it is not uncommon to see the Toothy grow to the size of 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 to 60 to 70 to 80 power so that if it ever leaves the battlefield, the Toothy player draws their entire library on the spot. And if they don't happen to have some type of laboratory maniac as a win condition to make it so that drawing their entire library wins the, them the game, then they are just going to lose. And that is a very scary proposition. Toothy's doing exactly what you wanted Toothy to do, but you it could also kill you as a result of that. And you have to actually be careful of drawing too many cards off of that thing. Way, that is that is too much of a good thing. That is too much turkey. Well, it, it kind of to... to point back to an episode we did recently about uh, lessons from other games. Nunu is a jungler from League of Legends where everything snowballs. Their entire thing is, oh, I'm going to make this big snowball and eventually gets too big to control. So you just lose control of the snowball. Toothy is 100% a snowball that can get too big to control. Um, so eventually you just you lose it um, and things kind of backfire. That 100% has happened. I've seen it happen with both Toothy and with uh, the League of Legends champion there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah, you can overcommit and really shoot yourself in the foot. I mean, I feel like this is a recurring thing with Joey's picks here. Um, Karazkar kills himself. <laughs> Toothy kills himself. Um, hey, I, hey, I'm not the one playing Toothy. This is experience I've seen playing against Toothy. Okay, well, uh, you I, should play Toothy more often than is what I'm, I'm hearing you say. <laughs> well, speaking of issues with card draw here, I, I have one that I've ran into over the years. Um, I have a Talrand Sky Summoner deck that's built around making tokens. Um, so, you know, I will cast a, a consider or a ponder or a brainstorm, efficient spells that replace themselves or even draw me a card so I can make a token and then, you know, hopefully draw another one to make more tokens. And, and the, the win condition in that deck is, is to go wide with these evasive drakes and, and eventually kill people. Um, 
because my deck is going wide with evasive drakes, it's useful to have cards like, say, Bident of Thassa or Coastal Piracy to draw extra cards off those flyers that are, are tricky to block. So, you know, mm -hmm. I'll make half a dozen drakes, drop a Bident of Thassa, draw half a dozen cards, multiple of which will be those kind of cantrip effects that make me more drakes and draw me more cards. It synergizes very nicely. Um, or, or at least it did, you know, five or six years ago when I first built that deck. Um, <laughs> then they printed, you know, Kindred Discovery, which is an amazing card and does a very similar thing. <laughs> and then they oh, no. printed Reconnaissance Mission and Curiosity Crafter. And those are all great as well, but they're not instants or sorceries. So, like, if I don't have Drakes in play already, they don't really do very much for me. Um, and then on top of that, of course, over the years, you get in, there's just other good permanents that work well in that deck that have showed up, you know, as foretold or Shark Typhoon or Teferi's Ageless Insight. Um, again, oh. really good cards that synergize with the deck very nicely, except that they're not instant or sorceries. And every time I add one of those to the deck and take out an instant or sorcery, as good as they are, it throws that balance off slightly. And I caught myself at one point where I was for multiple games in a row in this position where I had a bunch of these permanents in play that if I had drakes, I would be destroying the game, but I couldn't <laughs> make drakes because I wasn't drawing the spells I needed to actually make them. I just kept drawing permanents that didn't do what I needed to do. So I, I've had to kind of fold back and pull some of those things out of that deck to get back to the threshold I want of actual spells that create the tokens. Um, so I've kind of reverted to that balance, but that was a very easy thing to throw off by just putting in really good cards that were really good in that deck. I, I love this, especially like I think the most classic example of like the support is getting in your way is like an artifact deck. Like especially if you're playing like Brea Ethereum Shaper, for example, like four color artifacts is going to be so awesome. And there are so many good cards to support all of the artifacts. You've got the new Oswald Fiddlebender, which helps you birthing pot out all of your artifacts. But Oswald himself is not an artifact. You've got Jorah Weatherlight Captain, who's going to draw you cards every time you cast a historic spell, which includes your artifacts. But she is not an artifact. You've got Mirrodin Besieged, which is an enchantment that helps out your artifacts. You've got efficient construction, which is again an enchantment that helps out your artifacts. You've got all of these different artifact support cards that by the time you get done with all of the, even an initial draft of the deck, you're like, oh wait, huh. I only have like 10 artifacts, like room for 10 artifacts left in this deck because the support is getting in your way and you actually have to not play a whole bunch of those support cards because you need actual artifacts to make any of them worthwhile. Right. And, and you're not pulling them from the list because they're not good. A lot of times they're amazing. They just don't do what you need them to do. They're, like I said, it's, it's a perfect example of too much of a good thing. They're a good thing. They're just the wrong good thing. Well, we did we did make the joke uh, a few times, actually. Pretty much every time there's a new set that comes out, we make the joke is you can make an entire commander deck with all the legendary creatures that, you know, think artifacts matter. Uh, eventually, <laughs> yeah. you're going to put all those in the deck and you're not going to have any artifacts left over. So, yeah, you can absolutely have too much of a good thing because you have so many artifacts, especially mono blue, artifact matters commanders. <laughs> uh, you can make a whole deck of them and then you have no actual artifacts to have any sort of payoff. But that absolutely happens. Like Boros commander decks or Boros equipment decks, I should specify. There are so many good legendary creatures you can put in support roles and so many other mm -hmm. you have your your pure steel paladins you have sigarda's aid you have all these cards that support the equipment strategy that you can actually cut back on equipments and you realize oh well poop i'm only running five <laughs> equipments but i have all these cards that make my right. like if i draw one equipment i'm going to get this mountain of bonuses but really <laughs> you might want to dial down and say i really want to get these few bonuses so that i just can get those more often and over and over again and if i can add another possible idea to an example of an equipment based deck i actually also think that there's but not often, but sometimes this can happen. There is occasionally a situation where your own swords of X and Y effects might be the very thing that gets in your own way sometimes because the swords of X and Y provide excellent protection from multiple colors. But if, for, for instance, in a Gallia, the uh, the kindred, I can't remember the full name, but she's the Bont uh, enchantment aura and also artifact commander that came out in the AFR precons. That one loves to have auras and equipment. And if you're playing something like a Sword of Feast and Famine, great equipment. Gives you protection from green and black, untaps your lands, amazing equipment. And yet it will also 
despite how good that card is, it will contradict any of the other green ores that you want to put onto your commander in that Voltron deck too. And that can sometimes be an experience that you run into when you're playing these commanders that care a lot about suiting themselves up and giving themselves these protections and stuff that the protections you're giving it are good, necessary, make it harder to block, make it harder for your opponents to kill, but also might be the kind of thing that also prevents you from making them even better in combat too, which is this weird contradiction to run into when trying to play one of those decks. I mean, I'm sure that Dana has never come across, you know, putting a uh, sort of feast and famine onto his Sigarda and then had all those, uh, you know, uh, auras that he had on Sigarda fall off. Never happened before. No, I've never, never had that happen with Valduk putting a, a sword that gives protection from red onto Valduk and then gotten really sad. <laughs> the, the, the tone of voice that you're using there, Matt, implies that maybe this is a mistake you've learned from in this the past. This is a purely hypothetical comment that I'm making right now. <laughs> Okay. That's, okay. <laughs> that's after you you mess something up by equipping lightning greaves and realize you can't remove it because it's your only creature, and you're like, I'll never yep. make that mistake again, and then you do it with a sword six months later. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's the same lesson, just different side of that coin. Well, so you were also talking about payoffs. I'm wondering, Matt, is the, uh, the the payoffs and the support stuff sometimes something that you run into when it comes to your landfall decks? For example, I know that you have Omnath Locus of Rage as your landfall deck. Do you ever run into, like... An instance of like, yeah, I, the, the Rampaging Bayloths and all of the other landfall payoff cards that I'm getting here, they're kind of getting in the way of, I'd actually rather have ramp spells here or other things that like get me extra land drops. Is that an oversaturation you've ever encountered? Or in that deck, is that something that hasn't been too much of a problem? That's just another example that's popped in my mind. I'm wondering what your experience is with um, that it hasn't been a, It hasn't been a problem personally, but I absolutely could see where that happens because there are so many valuable payoffs. Um, I've had to be really, really... Um, intentional about what payoffs am I putting in there? How many am I putting in there? While also making sure I'm not pulling any lands out of the deck because that just means that's one less card that's going to make all these other payoffs actually work. And we've talked a little bit and hinted towards it that having the payoff in the command zone always is a little more helpful. So I can dial back a little bit on having Rampaging Baylos in, in the deck because I just have Omnath Locus of Rage in the command zone instead. Um, that makes a very, very big difference. So I only need you know, five or six really good payoffs. And then the rest can be the ramp spells, the support cards um, to make the deck function. And then obviously the lands, you know, to empower those really, really good landfall payoffs that I have. The, the, the kind of generic version of that that I've seen, particularly among newer players, is they're really hyped to play their green deck. They're just going to put a bunch of ramp in. So, you know, they'll they'll turn two, cast that nature's lore, and like turn three, they'll cast that cultivate, and turn four, drop that close of vegetation. And you're looking like, man, they're already up to seven lands. That's going to be something to deal with if they had cards in their hand, which they don't. Uh, They've just ramped uh, out, you know, every half the lands in their deck, and they're sitting there hellbent because they ran so many ramp spells in the deck and didn't really think beyond the fact that I want to ramp a bunch, and I probably also need to have an equivalent amount of card draw to refill your hand to use the ramp and then pay offs for that actual ramp once you have it in place. Um, so yeah, that's that's a, a thing I've seen there for sure where, hey, ramp's amazing, but you need to take the next step and figure out what you're going to do with it. You can definitely have too much of that good thing. Yeah, Dana, that's a really good example. A very, a very clear example there too of ramping out way fast and there's no all dressed up and nowhere to go. I'm kind of wondering, in your opinion, is it like, the ramp is a really easy example there. In in your opinion, though, is it like easy to or, or possible to have too much of a good thing when it comes to the card draw spells? Like we certainly discussed, you know, Toothy earlier, which is certainly can be a lot more card draw than necessarily the deck pilot wanted to, to deal with. It could draw them out. But in terms of just like actual draw spells in their deck, is, does that have the same relationship as, as ramp too much going on there? Or is it like a much harder limit on that. I'm just curious your opinions there. I, my my guess is it's tougher to paint yourself in a corner with card draw than it is with ramp. I think it, ramp, the, the kind of best example is that person who drops that turn one burgeoning and empties all the lands from the hand and, and makes themselves a threat because they've got four lands down by, by the time turn two rolls around mm. and then doesn't draw land for, you know, three more turns. So they haven't necessarily got that far ahead, but they've painted a massive bullseye on themselves. I, I think, I mean, you can paint a bullseye on yourself with a card draw, but like you tend to be able to even if you're drawing card draw spells with your card draw, you're just going to find something <laughs> eventually. I think it's a lot, it's a lot tougher to, 
to really kind of mess that up than it is with some other things like like ramp in particular. All right. This is a really interesting discussion, you guys. But there's another segment that we've put off for far too long. And we need to make sure that we're not overindulging ourselves just in the topic. We also have to stay balanced here in the podcast and also introduce one of our segments here, Challenge the Stats. There's so much data on EDHREC, but we don't always agree with it. Sometimes we think that cards see too much or too little play. So we will balance our diet here in this podcast with a nice challenging of those statistics. Well, before before we put everything back in balance, you should treat yourself a little bit, maybe a little pumpkin pie of the uh, the bling world um, by going to altersleeves.com slash EDH Retcast, uh, where you can get yourselves some uh, pumpkin pie tier or apple pie tier. I, I'm not going to tell you how to eat your pie. They're all delicious. Let's be real. But the pie tier uh, sleeves, which are alter sleeves, which they just print all your alternate uh, art, your extended borders, anything you can dream of. It's probably on an altar sleeve to be real, um, but you can do that going over to altersleeves.com. It's a great way to protect your cards, add a little bit, a uh, little something extra to the art. So head over to altersleeves.com slash EDH to support the show and get yourself some pumpkin pie for your cards. That sounds pumpkin weird, but not, not putting pumpkin pie on the cards, but pumpkin, pumpkin pie for the cards. I very much appreciate that, Matt. Well done. And uh, hey, you is your challenge this week a pumpkin pie tier challenge? Um, this, I don't know if it's pumpkin pie tier. It, well, okay, it is pumpkin pie tier in, in terms of it's just absolutely wild to okay. have go off. Um, so I was playing against an Is It Tokens deck. Um, it wasn't Brutaclad, but Brutaclad needs to be playing this card. So Brutaclad is um, one of the old Commander Precon commanders. Um, I want to say it was 2018, um, where it's Is It Colors, and basically all your creature tokens um, have haste, and at the beginning of combat on your turn, you create a 2-1 blue mirror artifact creature token. Then you may choose a token you control, and all of your tokens become a copy of that token you have. Um, so this deck obviously loves to go wide, loves to do all the things, putting all the tokens onto the battlefield and then swinging with them. So one card that just absolutely destroyed me this past um, pre-release weekend was Surge to Victory. Now it wasn't in a Brutaclad deck, but that's probably the problem because Brutaclad players are not playing Surge to Victory. So Surge to Victory is four red red for a sorcerer that says exile target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard. Creatures you control get plus X plus O until end of turn, where X is that card's mana value. And then whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player this turn, copy the exiled, exiled card, and you may cast the copy without paying its mana cost. Uh, this card is absolutely certifiably pumpkin pie tier just <laughs> over the top great um i mean brutaclad decks are playing stuff like brass's bounty they're playing all sorts of different treasure makers like unexpected windfall as well so they're already making a bunch of tokens and if you're just turning them into a two one um, this is a fantastic way to just blow everything up and just ugh, it's it's great. Um, absolutely wild. Even if you just treat it like a pump spell for your go wide army, it's still going to do a lot of work. Now, obviously, there's a little bit of timing that you kind of have to work around with if you're animating a bunch of, to uh, bunch of treasure tokens, for example, but you're still going to get that cast trigger when they deal all the damage, which means um, you're casting a lot of copies of Visions of Ruin. You're casting a lot of copies of Quasi-Duplicate or whatever it is that you want to be playing in those Brutaclad decks. This is a great way to cast five, six, 30 copies of that spell. Um, and that is pretty dang good, folks. Um, Search of Victory currently is not showing up on Brutaclad's page at all. And it's only played in 1800 decks total right now. That is absolutely 100% pumpkin pie tier, such a good card. And that is just uh, people you need to fix it. <laughs> that that spell is crazy. Like, e even if you just have a couple of one ones, just that's just like three or four or whatever, like that can be a spell that gives them all plus seven because you're getting that brass's bounty, like you mentioned. Like, this can be good even when Brutaclad isn't around to get there. This can be good. I feel like this is a spell that is getting overlooked because of the context in which it was released. It was released in the Zaphi Precon, mm -hmm. which makes it appear as though it's a spell slinger type of card, but that's just a good aggro card. That pump is great. And if you've got just a small handful of creatures, but some of them can poke through you still get more stuff whether it's you're getting one of your ramp spells back from the graveyard or another token producer this spell's amazing that's one of my favorite cards from the Strixhaven set in total and that's saying something because there were like eight thousand cards from the Strixhaven set i really like this card and more decks that make a bunch of bodies should be playing it I yeah completely i mean two-thirds of brutaclad decks are playing sahili's artistry which means if you are you targeting this with surge to victory your creature is getting plus six plus oh and they're going to get to cast a lot of sahili's artistry that's 
absolutely wild. I, I love Surge to Victory. It has blown me up too many times that uh, other people should have to experience it. So my challenge today is sent to us by a listener at Milk Porch on Twitter. Um, and it's for the, the very new Umbris Fear Manifest Commander. So how Umbris works is Umbris gets plus one, plus one for each card your opponents own in exile. And whenever Umbris or another nightmare or horror enters the battlefield under your control, target opponent exiles cards on top of their library until they exile a land card. So looking at the, the list of things showing up in the, you know, 100 plus Umbris decks we already have showing up, there's a lot of the nightmares and horrors that exist showing up in those lists. There's not very many nightmares or horrors in Commander, um, but, but the ones that exist on cards are mostly showing up in an Umbris list just to get that trigger. What isn't showing up, however, is a sorcery spell that makes horrors, and that's Call of the Nightwing. I am guessing players were just looking for creatures that met the creature types, and they weren't looking for an actual spell that made tokens. Uh, Call of the Nightwing is two uh, black-blue, and it makes a 1-1 one, one horror creature token with flying, and then it has um, Cypher. So it basically imprints itself on a creature, and whenever that creature deals combat damage, it fires off that spell again. So it's a way to make another one of those horror tokens every single turn and generate another Umbrus trigger. Um, it's in like 17% of the Umbrus decks right now. Um, it's not an amazing card, but given the you know relative rarity of horrors and nightmares, the ability to almost always guarantee a trigger every turn is really, really useful. And because of the way Cypher works, you can cast Call of the Nightwing, make that initial horror creature that does have evasion, and then imprint the spell onto that token. So oh, you clever. will always have something with evasion that you can swing through and probably always hit somebody until they remove it. And if someone wants to remove your token to keep that cipher from firing off, that's probably pretty good too if they want to <laughs> like blow one of the removal spells on a 1-1 token. So, um, yeah, I, I, I agree with Milk Porch here. Call the Nightwing should be in more than just 17% of the Umbrus decks out there. Nice. Cool challenge. Cool name, too, by the way. I, I really like that one. I'll move on to the final challenge this week. My challenge here is for a Super Friends deck led by Karth the Lion, the Golgari Super Friends commander that came out in Modern Horizons. And this is just a mana rock that I feel can be really, really good for Super Friends decks, but it doesn't seem to be getting all that much love in Karth the Lion. That's Honor Worn Shaku. Three mana, mana rock from the original Kamigawa set. It taps for a colorless, and you can tap an untapped legendary permanent you control to untap the Honor Worn Shaku so that it can again tap for mana. This is just a cool way to use your Planeswalkers as mana dorks the planeswalkers can activate regardless of whether they're tapped so you can just tap your planeswalkers to get a little bit of extra mana sometimes from your honor worn shaku this is the type of thing that doesn't necessarily show up in like planeswalker decks with a whole bunch of colors if you're playing four colors a colorless mana that sometimes can be a bit of a bugaboo but in a two color deck it's a lot less of a cost for it to produce colorless mana especially if it can produce multiple mana per turn it only shows up in 10 percent of karth lion decks right now and i feel like this is a pretty underrated mana rock for this commander because it could get you a whole bunch of mana, which you could use to spend on even more Planeswalker spells, which will then get you even more mana with the Honor Worn Shaku. I don't know, Dana, you have more experience with Super Friends than I do, but I feel like this might be a pretty good way to turn Planeswalkers into mana dorks, and I feel like that's just funny, if nothing else. Uh, yes, I, I tend to agree. Um, it, it's very, very useful in those real, real, really narrow situations. Um, and it's also one of those cards that the, the price had spiked up once that change happened that turned mm. Planeswalkers into legendary things. But it, it since came back down to earth and is a much more affordable card than it was right after that that happened. So yeah, if you're playing a Super Friends deck, especially if it isn't a five-color deck, definitely something worth considering for sure. Yeah, fun stuff. Okay, fellas, let's get back into our main topic. We're again talking about how sometimes you overindulge or things are a little bit out of balance in the EDH deck. Sometimes they are lessons that are learned the hard way that you had a good thing, but there might have been too much of it going on. Dana, let's actually pass it back to you. If you've got another example of something that was out of balance in your EDH decks that needed a huge correction to try and get over that weird deck building hump. 
Um, so, so yeah, there's one that I, I have been really keeping an eye on so far. And it's not that I've, I've pushed too much of the good thing, but I, I feel like I'm right at the point where at this point I don't need any more of them. And, and that's fulling effects. So I have a crush the blood braided deck that's built around, um, making large creatures with plus one counters and then using things like fulling to deal direct damage to people. And because of the way crush works, all those counters, um, then go on to crash, release all that, the, the power of those creatures buffs crash up, who I can then fling again. Um, so I want to have some density of, of variance on fling in that deck. So I always have one when I need one, but I don't need too many of them. So like, that's something I have to keep an eye on that balance. Um, currently there's eight different spells I have in that deck that do something very similar to fling things like thud or um, souls fire or essence harvest. And I guess Chandra's ignition kind of counts as well. That would take me to nine. And that's been about right. There was a point a couple of years ago when I always felt like I wanted one or two more and I've got one or two more since then. And the last year or two, it's always felt like I have the right amount. Um, the question is, once we get another one or another two of those, <laughs> do I want to try to put them in the deck? Because if I have three in my hand simultaneously, that doesn't do me any good, really. I, right. I don't want to have a bunch of those effects. So I'm at kind of a good balance point right now. And then, and, and now maybe I can start swapping them out for worse versions of the same effect versus like just running all of them. Um, but I definitely don't think I want more than I currently have. So I, I have finally, I think, kind of hit the perfect form of equilibrium there and don't want to push it further because when I push it further, that's going to throw things off. So that's one where I right now I have the exact amount of the good thing, I think, um, and any more is going to mess things up. I, I That kind of overlaps a little bit with the experience that I had with Riel where I wasn't sure how many... Um, of those fling effects because real can get very large very quickly. Um, how many of those did I want to have? But then also like I had to keep in mind, not only you know with your deck, Dana, Crash is pretty reliably out there, naturally gets very big. Um, and if he's gonna get removed, like there's still ways that you're getting benefits from it. Um, Riel folds really hard to grave hate. So if Riel mm -hmm. gets too big, um, not only do I have to worry about, you know, being able to find the fling, but also Riel needs to be big enough to be worth flinging. So like that was another kind of balance where, yes, it's a nice card to have, but also like, I don't think I can reliably do it near as much as you can in your crash deck. Uh, so that was definitely consideration on why I'm only running two of those effects, but I do wish it was more reliable because it is a very, very fun thing to do. Well, and in that particular deck, it's kind of a double pronged problem because I've built that deck around interacting with plus one counters as well. Crash gets buffed with plus one counters. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of nice things in there. Hey, I, I probably want to run maybe doubling season, right? So when I put 10 counters on Crash, it becomes 20 and becomes that much easier to fling him for lethal damage. But we've gotten quite a few of those things that double plus one counters over the years as well. So mm -hmm. uh, not only am I balancing not having too many fling effects, I'm trying to balance not having too many things that interact with plus one counters in that deck. So, you know, when Winding Constrictor came out, for example, a creature that is basically a hardened scales on a body that puts an additional plus one counter. I ran that for a while, but I hit the point where the 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 amount of utility in that compared to other things I just didn't need that like maybe I did when Hardened Scales first came out. Um, it's it's so so the plus one counter thing I've definitely gotten past the point of a good thing there. And when I'm dealing with two of those things in a single deck, it's just a lot to juggle. I I can absolutely see that. And also I real quick had a question from Matt as our uh, certainly our food expert here. I would say, um, what is the okay. uh, Thanksgiving dinner equivalent of the fling? Is that like the cranberry sauce or or is that like I'm just wondering how how much was too much? Oh, that that little zip that you throw on at the end. Yeah, that that's absolutely cranberry sauce. Um, <laughs> Maybe like maybe your grandma makes like a really good gravy, uh, <laughs> kind of holds everything together. To yeah, totally. Some sort of like real bomb condiment. Yeah, yeah, that absolutely absolutely makes sense. And yeah, I can see that. Like, I, I think this is something I've run into with my Yannette deck occasionally, where I I want to have a whole bunch of top deck manipulation stuff so that Yannette can get odd CMC cards on the top so that she can free cast them for me whenever she attacks. Awesome. But if I draw too many of the top deck manipulation cards in my hand. 
they all kind of contradict each other. Like they're not card advantage. I just like, I've got like three brainstorm effects and they're all going to put the same card back on top of my deck for Yannette to use. But I just have these other cards that I don't need right now. And they all kind of like just get in each other's way. So that's another thing, sort of like the fling that you're, you're uh, describing there, Dana. It's like, these are cards that like, they're all good. I definitely need them. I don't need all of them at once, though. Yeah, I mean, overloading, like, you only want one of any given effects because, yeah, like you said, they, they don't stack. They don't combine. You don't get, like, compounding effects from it. So, yeah, only one at a time because otherwise they just compete against each other. Mm-hmm. Matt, what's another oversaturation thing you've run into? So, mine actually is with a whole archetype, and I think it's probably why I, I don't play these types of decks. But what Dana was talking about where he's trying to juggle plus one, plus one counters with fling effects with XYZ, um, that's how I feel with aristocrats. <laughs> uh, for some reason, uh, I just I never can figure out the ratios on do I want enough of this effect, whether um, I'm you know having blood otters type of effects where I'm gaining life and dealing damage, or do I want... Um, like Midnight Reaper type of effects where I'm drawing cards whenever creatures die in the Grim Hair specs? Or do I want to be working on something else? And so working on the the ratios within ratios where everything's kind of fighting against each, itself, I, I just, I've never been able to get right. And we even mentioned on the podcast, you know, when, when Joey, you were talking about a recent challenge, talking about Blood Tip Archer mm-hmm. or Poison Tip Archer, excuse mm-hmm. me, um, where we said, yeah, a lot of times if you want a, one copy of an effect, you probably want two. And if you want two, you might want to consider three. And if you want three, then I mean, four isn't out of the <laughs> imagination. So yeah. for me, it's always finding out like how many of these effects and then you know, if, if you put too many of the, when a creature dies, you do something. Well, eventually if you're playing all a whole deck full of those, well, A, you don't have any creatures to die, and B, how are you making them die? And so, like, finding out just everything going on, there are so many moving parts, and, man, it just they always seem to be competing against each other because, yes, you always want to make sure you have a Blood Artist or a, a Zulaport Cutthroat out on the battlefield, but also, you know, you want to make sure that you're not running out of steam. And so finding out just where all that fights against each other. Um, I always seem to have too much of one of those effects in the deck and I never see the others. And so I tinker and I just go, the pendulum keeps swinging from one end to the other and it's so frustrating and I'm just going to go back to the combat step. No, no, don't, Matt, Aristocrat, it's the- I, 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 I give up. Th- this is the equivalent of stuffing from, from the, the feast. Like this is the, these are the best. This is, this is the, <laughs> the heart of the meal. Don't give up on the aristocrats. It's so great. But yeah, I've certainly run into exactly the thing that you're talking about where I kind of discounted how many of the certain types that I needed and getting that balance wrong means that I will have to sacrifice the very things I'm trying to enable for the strategy to work in the first place. And that can be really tough to, to work around it. Mm-hmm. Dana, as you said at the top of the show, only through years of experience have I found the balance that finally feels right to me. And there is no exact formula to any of this that can be given to any player because it's all based on playstyle and the specific commander that you're using and the specific effects that you want to capitalize most upon. And so it's only, I don't know, the deck of, of aristocrat strategy feels like leather boots to me where I've had to like mold them over time. Leather finally conformed to the way that I like to play, but I had to learn with it for years for the balance to finally work itself out because, yeah, there were certainly too much of certain categories that would just make the deck not function as much as I wanted to. But but Matt, aristocrats yeah. are the best. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole aristocrat strategy feels like kind of like what we joked about with with artifact matters. Like you can make a whole deck of aristocrats matters, but then you don't have anything actually. It's like be sacrificing or to sacrifice things too, and so you just have all these payoffs, but nothing that you actually want to be sacrificing themselves. And so yeah, you you get into this weird situation of, okay, well, there's all these cool aristocrat cards, but um, I don't want to sacrifice them to themselves. So where do we go from here? (laughs) Well, we've kind of been focusing on physical uh, amounts of of things that are too much in a deck, but I do think sometimes there can be a psychological component that's worth considering too. Um, Counterspells, I think, for example, come up here. you know, you would think that you would want more counter spells in a deck, and maybe you do, depending on who you're playing against or what you're doing. But I, that can generate aggro from the players you're playing against. If you have a deck that's running 30 counter spells and you are stopping people from doing whatever they're doing all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas surgical use of those counter spells might be not quite as effective as hard control in the entire game. But that's maybe offset by generating way, way less threat from everyone else around you who's getting annoyed by you constantly countering their stuff. Um, so I think there's that factor too that we haven't really touched on. You can, you can have too much of a good thing and the, the too much can be, 
it, it can be too much threat that you're generating or too much annoyance or whatever, however you want to term that from everybody else who just doesn't want to deal with your BS anymore. <laughs> that So on a previous episode, we talked about how Dana, your Jeru with eyes open deck, which is Planeswalker focused, it probably would be strategically better for you to play a whole bunch of board wipes in that deck to keep the field clear so that your planeswalkers could ultimate more reliably but how you also don't want to do that because so many board wipes would be aggravating and not even necessarily all that much fun for you well let me tell you i recently played a game where there were 10 board wipes throughout the course of the game and you know what it was it was a teensy bit of a slog for things to finally close out because 10 board wipes was a lot and like a long game is totally cool but like the forward momentum of things also that psychological aspect that you're talking about it's just like you know, there are some things that can be a little bit too much, even if they are strategically correct to play more of that removal stuff. There is still a thing as too much removal. That is definitely a thing that can happen. And it's yeah. <laughs> Joey, you said 10 board wipes. and I got the same feeling in my stomach as like 13 year old Matt did when my mom said we need to talk. Um, that's the type <laughs> of like gut drop that I felt when you said 10 board wipes. Um, that sounds absolutely atrocious. I mean, and some of them, well, some of them were even ruinous, like ruinous ultimatum, for example. Like they're good board wives, but it was just a whole lot of them. Another kind of example of this that I've encountered recently um, is I'll use the, the, the card Yogmas Will, for example, here. You know, hmm. six or seven years ago when I first got into Commander, that was a relatively inexpensive card. It was $13-ish. I think I, I paid for one locally at one point in time. And I basically used it as a regrowth in my deck. It was a black way to get back a particular spell I wanted to cast that you couldn't always do in black, particularly if you're talking about an instant or sorcery or something. And nobody back then really thought much about it. It was an old card, but it wasn't crazy expensive. That's not true today. It's a crazy expensive card. <laughs> yeah. And the threat that card generates is not commiserate with the power it has in my particular deck. So I, I think that's kind of a too much of a good thing situation too. It's a good card. But the reaction it gets from people nowadays sometimes is not one I want to deal with. Like people just see that and assume the rest of the deck may be way more powerful than it really is. Mm -hmm. That's not worth it for me. Like I like to play a deck that look that 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 looks very subtle, that isn't ever the biggest, scariest thing in play, usually. And Yogmas Will keeps me from doing that. It was just it's a good card, it's too much. The price-wise, I guess in particular, the threat it generates isn't worth it for me. I mean, I absolutely have I've had that exact experience with Phyrexian Altar and Ashnod's Altar. Yeah. Um, those cards, they have such a reputation, but then you put them in one of my decks and they're just really just there. Um, I am not good <laughs> at using those types of cards, but as soon as I play them on twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast, everybody's like, oh my gosh, Matt's got an Ashnod's Altar. We better get rid of that. And like, <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm just going to. What? What? Why? No. Um, like, I'm just. Th it's one of those cards, like. Yeah, like with Yagmoth's will, like I'm not good at using certain cards to their fullest potential, I, I guess. And I, I totally have that experience with with any of the altar cards. It's so rare to see some of those used honestly is just the, the, the thing is to sure. see them used. I would almost even is subpar the right word. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But like an underworld breach drops down, which can let people cast stuff out of their graveyard. And I'm just like, I think that there's some shenanigans afoot that are if I don't you know, respond with an appropriate amount of removal or or force or something to, to that card, then I'm about to lose this game. I see a Sanguine Bond come down and I'm like, well, Exquisite Blood could be right behind it so that it creates that infinite combo loop so that we just lose on the spot. It, it makes it a little bit tough sometimes that sometimes you do have those cards that they're exactly what your deck wants to do. But since they are so good at being the thing, that they also have a reputation that precedes them. And that is a tough thing to try and get yourself out of whenever you're in a game with one of those, because I mean, the only way that you can prove that you're actually using them a little bit more honestly and not even in some combo or storm sort of situation, the only way that you can prove that is to, I don't know, have them on the table for several turns, which is unlikely to occur right. if you played one of those because people want to kill it. Yeah, don't don't say like just let them sit there because I've tried doing that, Joey, and you blow up the Ashton's <laughs> altar every single time. So don't give me that nonsense. 
Well, that's just it. I'm saying it's difficult to prove. And I also, some, I, I don't know. I don't want you to have the chance to, for, for me to be wrong about that. It's, it's dif- they're difficult you, things to trust. <laughs> you don't want to be proven wrong. That's okay. The, the, the truth comes out now. <laughs> it's a difficult thing to trust. Well, because I know what I can do with a Phyrexian altar there, Matt. I know what I'm capable of. Uh, and I, I, so I, I see it on your side of the table. And I'm just like, I don't know. That I, I know what I would do with it. So I don't know if because he, he's going to do that. I've heard people confess to a lot of mistakes they've made in Commander, but I, I don't think I've everyone heard, ever heard anyone at the end of a game go, man, I really shouldn't have removed my opponent's Ashnod's altar. There <laughs> I've you never go. heard someone say that. Usually there you it's go. the right choice. Very, very, very. I'm, ca- bad. I'm countering. I'm countering your Yogmoth will on site next time, Dana. <laughs> Just out of principle. Fair. That's fair. Well, I, that's just it. I feel like the principle of the thing can be a, a huge deal. Like you guys exile my graveyard all of the time with your bajuka bogs and stuff for good reason. Sure. Because I will do crazy gross stuff with my graveyard decks and you can't even trust necessarily that in my non graveyard decks, I might still be doing graveyard stuff in there. Cause that's just how much I love doing graveyard stuff. Like you do like it, it's a hard thing to prove. Once again, there's a reason to do that. And so, yeah, you're, you're you are rarely wrong if you exile Joey's graveyard. Like, you've learned that. It's the same type of lesson. Well, we've been talking a lot here about examples, um, mostly in our own decks, but one that jumps to mind about too much of a good thing is, is actually with one of our guests on stream on twitch.tv slash EDH RecCast, uh, Olivia Gobert-Hicks <laughs> with her Enchantress list. There, there it is. Solid plug. Solid plug, Dana. Hey, yeah. No, no, it's not just Matt who's always making the plug eight times an episode. It's also Dana. Teamwork. I love it. Yes. Teamwork. I love it. Yeah. No, Olivia is an amazing commander player, commander advisory group member, and she also has an Atraxa Enchantress list. And Enchantress is I think a great example of potentially too much of a good thing going on because all of those enchantress cards will draw you cards anytime that you cast an enchantment spell. But notably, they're mostly not like a May ability, like Enchantress's Presence and Argothian Enchantress. They say whenever you play an enchantment, you draw that card. And there can occasionally be times where an Enchantress deck has so many enchantments that it wants to play, but so many Enchantresses in play that playing one enchantment means that you'll draw like six or seven cards, which is amazing. But that could actually run you thin on your deck really aggressively fast. And that is specifically something that Olivia has harnessed to build her Atraxa Enchantress deck, which is exactly built to just deck herself out. Not with a lab man, not to win the game with it, but specifically just like, you know what? You're right. Enchantress is too much of a good thing. And I want to harness that to my own benefit. I'm just going to have fun. This is a cool game experience that most people don't see very often. I am going to draw my entire deck and lose the game because it's funny, because it's a, a, a feat to see that happen in front of you. And Enchantress is definitely a thing where, you know what? It can be too much of a good thing, but sometimes you can't have too much of too much of a good thing. I mean, th- th- those are all about the moral victories. That's where the stuffing comes in. Yes! I probably (laughs) shouldn't have any more stuffing, but I want it. Um, And so you do. And yeah, I, I, Joey, I'm with you. Stuffing is the best part. Um, And yeah, if you want to draw yourself out and uh, push push yourself over the edge, um, go take a nap afterwards. That's all I ask. That's why you wear the eating pants to Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) That's just it. You know what? It might have been overindulging, but you still got to indulge. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it is okay to to continue on that. And that's, I mean, we, we're here for a good time, not a long time, is a great philosophy to have when sure. playing Commander. Uh, all things in moderation, including moderation. There you go. That is a great lesson to end on. I absolutely love it, Dana. Guys, this was a whole bunch of fun. Listeners, I hope that you haven't overindulged on the EDH RecCast. For now, we are going to call this episode to a close. So, fellas, if our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find us all? Well, my Twitter feed is like the dinner roll, as in it's the vessel for everything good that goes into your mouth, <laughs> ties it all together. Um, find me on Twitter at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDH RecCast, which is like the corn casserole. Just that so good. <laughs> Just dip your turkey in that. Uh, twitch.tv slash EDH RecCast. The guests, they're so good, too. They're more like green bean casserole, if I say so myself wow. but they're still pretty amazing it's such a good time every single time and dana where can we find you you can find me on the twitter birds at dana roach my feed is kind of the pecan pie <laughs> of the thanksgiving dinner it's a little crunchy it's a lot sweet and it's definitely fattening <laughs> you can also find me on my other podcast the cmvr central and i'm writing articles for edh rec and for commander's herald and you can find 
all of us together at patreon.com slash edhreccast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And my equivalent here is just the nap that we're taking after all of this. <laughs> you can find us at the cast at edhreccast on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at edhreccast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to the whole team at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast. And we want to thank our sponsors. They are TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. Plus, you can visit altersleeves.com slash edhreccast for cool, custom edhrex sleeves. Listeners, we'd love to hear from you about times that you run into too much of a good thing in your own EDH decks, but for now, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.